0: This episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, is intended for informational and entertainment purposes only. This episode of Cheat Codes was supported by Agios. Doctors of Mars and Mike Callahan are employees of Agios Pharmaceuticals.
1: What's up, Cheat Codes listeners? It's me, Dr. Z. It's me, Dr. C. Dr. C, this is a first for me, man. You are actively in a car recording Cheat Codes via hotspot.
2: Can't miss an episode, Dr. Z. This is next level dedication, man. I love it. My dad's driving, so I'll give him all the credit.
1: We've got a jam-packed episode today. We're going to be talking to and honoring some mama bears in the sickle cell community. Yeah, this is going to be great. These are truly the beating heart of every community. and Every community has one of these mama bears that's just ready to stand up and do whatever's needed in that moment for the sickle cell warrior that needs it. And I'm just so excited for this panel. Absolutely. You want to jump right into it? Let's well, hit it. All right. Dr. C, We Holly John has been setting up some really nice guests for us on Chico's over the last several episodes.
2: It's been great.
1: We've spent a little bit of time highlighting legends in sickle cell disease. And and one thing that's really stuck out to me, man, um, through my career, my early career taking care of kids with sickle cell disease is often communities are centered and grounded by one or two very strong figures within that community who are revered and respected.
2: For sure. And I, I think this might be one of our best episodes ever because we talk to a lot of legends and they're great, but there's no bigger legend than mom. So like
1: <laughs> so that's what, and that's what I was just going to say, man. That central figure that seems to be the beating heart of that community for sickle cell disease patients, wherever they're living, it's usually not their doctor. It's usually, this, it's usually this figure that's sort of, it's like a unicorn, man. It, it, we call them mama bears.
2: Yeah, we have an easy job, Dr. Z. We come in, we give some answers, we walk out, we take credit, and then we say, go home and fix everything for us.
1: That's yeah, true. And these mama bears are within the community. They serve as protectors, as guides. They're the 24-7 call service. They're the ones who are there day and night. They're the ones who show up every day. They show up for every new diagnosis talk. They show up for every, sadly, funeral. They're there through every happiness. They're there through every sadness. And for that, we respect the legends who we're talking to today tremendously. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to have these legends one by one just give us a brief intro for who they are. And this intro is certainly not for the sickle cell warriors because the sickle cell warriors in the United States of America certainly know these three mama bears. This intro is really for the people, it's really for the healthcare workers, man. It's for me and you. It's for people who aren't familiar with the mama bears in the sickle cell community that that deserve that recognition. So I'm going to pass the mic right over to my good friend Yvonne and have her tell us a little bit about herself and her mama bear role.
3: Thank you so much, Dr. Z. And we appreciate being here. And I'll just tell you a little bit about me. I'm the director of patient services, my official title at St. Jude Children Research Hospital. We take care of over 900 children with sickle cell disease. But when I started in emergency room in a pediatric emergency room, and it happened to be the only emergency room pediatric emergency room in the entire city. So we saw so many, and this was before you had a prophylactic penicillin, before you had any of the drugs for sickle cell disease. You can imagine, it was devastating to see children come in and children uh, get sepsis, which is a horrible thing to happen. When you start having Pieces of your body falling off and parents have to decide, should we pull the plug on our child? And this is sudden. This isn't something you can prepare for. And so strokes, a three-year-old having a stroke and staying at the level of a a second grader for their entire life. The parents have to realize that this is the way they're going to be for their entire life. So going from the emergency department, my first job when I started with sickle cell was newborn nurse case manager. And at that time, you can imagine when you go to the hospital, you're gone in 24 hours. So the results aren't back from your newborn screening test. And so my job was calling, cold calling parents and telling them who they thought they had a perfectly healthy child that their child had sickle cell disease. And so I I made home visits. I couldn't imagine someone telling me that over the phone. So I would call them and immediately say, I'll be happy to come to your home and talk to you. Every single one of them took me up on it. Wow. Wow. And so that was, that grew over years and years and you just become friends, you have a pager. Back then they had pagers <laughs> call me anytime and they did. And, and you watch children grow and you advocate in the community. You make more and more friends. And so that's my that's my sickle cell story.
1: Amazing. <laughs> and- Amazing. No, I, I you gave me goosebumps, by the way. I uh, literally I, I have goosebumps right now uh, hearing that. We had you on during our St. Jude, our St. Jude honorary episode and, and heard some of your stories then, too. But it's always a pleasure to have you on cheat Codes. Let's move to our other two Mama Bears who actually on my screen right now are appearing in one window and I was joking earlier and saying there's too much power in, in, in this web browser. My computer's gonna shut down and can't handle it. But we've got Miss Adrian and, and Miss Pat who again are no strangers to the sickle cell community. They're no strangers to the advocacy space. But please tell us a little bit about yourselves.
4: So I'm gonna go first only because I'm being pressured to go first. My story is sometimes difficult for me to tell. I'm going to start by saying I got tricked into sickle cell. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what living in the sickle cell community meant. I didn't know much about sickle cell disease. I was a young nurse. I was a nurse manager at the time, and I was working in mental health. And I decided, I don't know what made me so wisely decide to volunteer at a camp for children with sickle cell disease. And so I went to the camp and they didn't let me be a nurse that first year. They made me be a camp counselor. With the teenage girls, as you can imagine, that was really a challenge. I I may have been about, at the most, six years older than they were. And so I was trying to tell them what to do. And, And so, While I was there, I met with Dr. Cage Johnson, who was the medical one of the medical directors of the camp. And we talked extensively about sickle cell disease and about what people with sickle cell disease had to live through. And at that time, that was when they were just deciding on the national level to have ten sickle cell centers across the country. And Dr. Johnson told me that he was applying for Sickle Cell Center. And he asked me if if he got the grant, would I be willing to come and work with him? And I said, sure. But I couldn't imagine that Dr. Johnson was going to be granted a a grant from the NIH. He was an African-American doctor who had never done sickle cell before. And I was like, he's not going to get that grant, so I don't have to worry about him. And a year later, he called me on the phone and said, I got the grant. When can you start? And I was like, I was just kidding. I <laughs> yeah, wasn't serious yeah. about that. <laughs> and he said, but you said you'd come and help me. And so I had to think about it extensively. And I think only only reason I wound up in that job was God-led. So I took the job not knowing anything about sickle cell disease, but what was so Amazing, when I came on, the clients that they were serving were my classmates in high school and stuff. So I got to know and to love people with sickle cell disease and listen to their stories. I used to think the kids that went to high school with me that didn't come to school were just lazy and didn't want to come to school. But I found out that they were impacted by the health condition that they had. And that it prevented them from doing all the things that I was able to do. Go on to school and enjoy a relatively normal life. They had to deal with pain and suffering and judgment and bias and, and just struggle. Not just them, but their families had to deal with that same struggle. And I guess it just pulled at my heartstrings. And I can remember at the time that I came on, people didn't believe in treating patients humanely so they would be on the unit in 10 out of 10 pain and they were not given medicines and i and oftentimes the joke was that when i came on the unit nobody was happy to see me because i was there arguing with people and demanding that they do something about the patient. And sometimes just going in the room and sitting there crying with the patient because they had to go through what they had to go through. And so that journey that I initially started really made me, I I didn't say that I I am a one of 10 children raised by a single father whose wife died when she was 32 years of age. And so... I knew how to fight for what I believed in because it came from growing up in a family of 10. You got to you have to exert your power in that family. And so I learned how to do that very early on. But because I tell people all the time, I know more people that have died from complications of sickle cell disease than I know that are living at this point. And so it made me keenly aware that the only way patients were going to get any of what they needed was to have a voice. And that was during that time, I decided that support groups were absolutely necessary to teach patients how to speak their truths so that people could truly understand sickle cell disease. And that's how the, the support group movement started as a result. And the seminars started as a result of a patients coming to me saying that they wanted to be heard. They wanted people to know what they were going through. And so this has been really a mission of love. And it's love that came about through watching people who are born into pain and Mm -hmm. suffering be mistreated. And need the support of someone who really actually cares about them. My kids' jokes are that I love people with sickle cell disease more than I love them. And my response is always no. I love them differently than I love. And so it's been a an incredible journey. I would not have traded it for anything in the world. It, it has given me pleasure. It's given me delight. And it's given me a reason for living and fighting harder. For people who don't have all the things that I, as a person, who lives a normal life, have and to be able to support parents and families has been amazing.
1: You said God put you on this path and it was a divine intervention. And I've got to agree, we're lucky to have you in this space. space the space is better for you. The space is better because of you and mama bears like yourself. So I we're going to dive into all of the things that we just talked
0: about. Agios is a biopharmaceutical company that's fueled by connections with patient communities, healthcare professionals, partners, and each other. Building on these connections and the company's unmatched leadership in the field of cellular metabolism, Agios is pioneering therapies of genetically defined diseases, a broad group of rare and more common diseases that are typically severe and life-threatening. Near-term, Agios is focusing on hemolytic and acquired anemias, including sickle cell disease, pyruvate kinase, or PK deficiency, and thalassemia. To learn more, visit agios.com. That's A-G-I-O-S dot com. I want to acknowledge
1: Ms. Adrian Shapiro with us here, another mama bear that needs no, no introduction to the community. Ms. Adrian, nice to see you again.
5: Hi. <laughs> so thanks for having us. And so it's so interesting as I sit here following the stories of these two amazing women and amazing nurses. I am a fifth generation of mothers in my family to have a child with sickle cell. Now, I have to stop and say, yes, there are many fathers, too, in those five generations. But as a mother, I have to speak to my mother heart. And so... Um, hearing what Yvonne was saying about this three-year-old I realized that both of both Yvonne and Pat have spoken of my life so my brother my older brother had sickle cell he had a stroke at three which left him impaired physically and mentally my mom at that time They would take children like him, especially males who would grow tall but never mature, and they would put them away. And my mom was like, no, he's not going anywhere. And so I grew up always with sickle cell in the house, always with my brother. And as the only girl was the one who accompanied my mom to doctor's appointments and things like that. And so I remember just being there with her, just the two of us. And then, and my brother, and there would be a doctor who would come in and tell her things, or or a nurse. And and my mom was just very straightforward about it, and she didn't want any other children, of her children, or any children in our generation, to have this journey. So we were all tested. All the kids were tested. I got a FOS negative, which happened, right? So there were expensive tests, and there were non-expensive so expensive test, and I had the cheap test. So in looking back, as a child, when I was always sick when the other cousins who identified as trait carriers were sick, and they kept saying it's because I was preemie, and I was tiny, and it turned out, no, it was because I had trait. And so when my daughter was born with a father from Cuba, which we didn't know anything about his family, really, and she was diagnosed. When we got the diagnosis through newborn screening, it was, first of all, it was a complete shock. And being the kind of person I am, they had to do a whole lot of tests to prove to me that they were right. (laughs) So that was my, yeah, introduction to it. So I got the letter, and once I got the letter and many times over got the test results that I in fact was a carrier and that Marissa was in fact a child with a sickle cell. The whole lens of my life changed. So all my plans changed for what career I was going to have, everything changed. And so everything immediately went to basically health and safety of my child first. And so... I was very blessed to be in Los Angeles where, in California, where I had, like I said, newborn screening. We had centers. She had many of the advantages my brother didn't have, treatment protocols. I just had a lot and was determined that she would have not only a normal life, but my I had to prepare her for a life without sickle cell because my mom would always say to me as we left, the prayer circles, or the uh, revival tents. Really, seriously, we did all of this. So they pray over my brother, and then she'd have my brother. (laughs) She would be in the middle. She'd have my hand. She'd have my brother's hand, and she'd walk me out, and then she'd look at me, and she'd say, God is good, but science is going to fix this. And it just instilled in me this belief that I had to... Marissa was going to have this life, she had to be educated, she had to be experienced, that she was going to have this life sickle-free. And what led me really to the advocacy was stem cell research, because I had kept up with the science, I was such a true believer in the science, and we thought cord blood, we thought BMT, we thought all of these things, but understanding the genetics and that my daughter wasn't a candidate for any of this, it led me to stem cells. So I had a life. I had to earn money. I did all that so she could have great care. And then when it got to the point where stem cells were a possibility, Ron, my husband, said, what do you want to do? And he thought I was going to say, travel the world and take care of you. And instead, I said, I'm going to become an advocate for stem cell and sickle cell. And that's where I have to admit, even though I had done camp funding, even though I had gone to, I actually had a a support group in my own home for families because they weren't in fun. I had done a lot of on the edges. I had never dealt deep. And when I had an experience where I saw how most sickle cell patients were treated, I realized how horrible it was, and that I had this life of privilege. And so as Pat says, when you have so many blessings, there is something that you feel compelled to do outside of your own life. And that's where I became this duality kind of thing, pushing the science and pushing treatments and that, and only thinking about my child to, to, oh my gosh, we have to do something about people right now. They deserve good care. They deserve everything I saw my brother have, everything my daughter had. They deserve that. And even more so now because we know so much more and that they have the promise. It's not just a promise. It is really the truth now. They have the truth to have a better life. And I have found my tribe. I found my family my mama bears my sister and faith, and this journey. I talk too much. No, but no, that, I mean, you know you could talk. Really, that's really it, and 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 as Pat said, we are by the bedsides. I'm a mother. I'm not a trained nurse. I'm not a psychologist. I'm just a mother. So with my mother heart, I am at the bedside. I am at the funerals. It's hard. You hear us talk about it, and we cry at these funerals. And I know with the mother heart, you're torn between, you cry because your child's gone, but you cry even more because they suffered so much needlessly while they were here. And and I guess, for me, when I say, or when we say, they're not going to let us back anymore, it's because, they invite us back, it's because we keep bringing that home. Because that's the one thing. Science is great. science is doing its thing, and it's not only doing its thing, it is accelerating, like crazy. So the thing that we need to have happen is people with sickle cell living with this need to have a better life, can't, because they deserve it, and because we can. And I think uh, sometimes that gets lost in the shininess of the new treatments and the cure and the grandstanding that you're going to do something now about racism and the DEI. That's why we do what we do. And it's hard. I don't judge anybody for n- turning away and not and not being in the fight because I have to admit it's hard. And without these women in my life, I, I couldn't do it.
1: Wow. I um, All three of you are just... Have left me speechless, which happens very seldomly.
5: Yeah, because we talk.
1: But I've got to say, I've got to, I've got to say, we'd be remiss if we don't acknowledge Marissa in this moment and just acknowledge what an articulate, intelligent, thoughtful individual she is. So, ha- hats off to you for raising a warrior who's got so much spirit and so much fight in her. We we, we are um, really lucky to have her in in, in this community. So thank you.
5: you. As um, I've had people ask me if I had known that she would have sickle cell, would I have not had her? And early on, I would have conversations with mothers one-on-one once they got that letter. And I would say to them, had I known I had trait and her father had trait, I never would have had children with him. I would have made that decision. But the idea of not having my child is like asking me if I could not breathe. All right, that is really it. And so that she is so amazing and that for the last three and a half years, she has benefited from new treatments where she has claimed her life and found her voice. Is something that I think we really need to get out to other mothers to let them know that with none of this journey is easy. But if we find what works, that can happen. Not only can the young ones not be be injured by having years of this disease tearing at their bodies, but those who have. She went, Dr. Z, she went from... Nine years almost of being an invalid to what it is she is now. And it's truly amazing. I wish my was here to see it. Yeah.
3: I I think that brings up a point that, you know, we're support. That's what we do. And I think we intuitively know that sickle cell is not just a medical condition. It affects all parts of life. And there's homelessness in the sickle cell community. There are, there's prison in the sickle cell community. We have to go to prisons and make sure that our young men and women who are in prison are getting the care that they need in prison. There's foster care. I follow children from foster families to foster families. They did not know that the child had sickle cell disease. And so there's so much more than just the medical aspect of sickle cell disease and the anticipatory anxiety of I've been mistreated. We, all, we didn't need COVID to tell us that there are health inequities in the system. We knew, we all knew. And knowing that if I go to the hospital, I'm going to be mistreated. But I know I have a chronic condition and I'm going to have to go over and over again. And what does that do to yours? I've had especially men tell me, I'm not going to allow them to treat me like that. I'm just not going. And I've known, and I think we've all known, worries who've died because they've waited so long to go to the hospital to get treatment. But this is a societal issue. It's not just sickle cell disease. And so I think we know that we have so much more that we have to support just than just the medical aspects of the disease. And that's what we
1: do. You bring up so many good points, and there's so many things that have come up in the last few minutes that I want to tie together here. We heard Miss Adrian talking about the conversation that was had when there's a recognition of two people with sickle cell trait having a child. Miss Pat and Miss Yvonne have been in those rooms for now, really two separate points right? And really, we if we really break down sickle cell disease, you break it down to an era before hydroxyurea and an era after hydroxyurea, really big categories. I'm curious, now that we're in this new era of lots of attention, new therapies, clinical trials, a cure coming, what does the conversation now look like when you're sitting in a room with a newborn, or you're doing counseling to prospective parents, has that conversation now, what's the tone of it? And how has it changed over the last several decades?
4: So my conversation with families now is hope. It is now, I come from a time when there was nothing we could do for people. When I first started out, they were just really starting hydroxyurea good and fighting with folks to give their child a chemotherapeutic agent was a major issue for us. And now to have things that have demonstrated a difference in the lives of people with sickle cell disease is amazing, but getting people to participate in that because of all the mistrust is still a major issue for us. And so my conversation with parents of newly born babies is that your child will live a different life with sickle cell disease than people lived 40 years ago when there was nothing to offer them. And you can be hopeful that your child may even realize a cure. In their lifetime. And so it's a much different conversation. The parents are still fearful. They still are concerned. They still have some issues of trying to decide whether they should do this or not do this, because if something happens to that child, are they responsible for causing further damage? They already are traumatized by the fact that they have a child who has sickle cell disease. And in these times, when they should have known better that's what they say i should have known better i should have got tested i should have had my mate tested but doesn't it doesn't look at those kind of things young people who are just becoming sexually active they don't think about those kind of things and so we have a major responsibility to get out there and really we used to talk about how we we're going to educate the community we've been educating people with sickle cell disease but what about the rest of the community What about people that don't look like us that carry the gene for sickle cell? None of these people are really, we haven't really tied it all together. We've got to somehow tie it together where we get that information out and where people truly understand that you are at risk. I can remember when I first came in, I had a family that had 10 children and eight of them have sickle cell disease. Can you imagine parents trying to take care of eight children? with sickle cell disease. So every week somebody different was in the hospital and the parents spent all their time at the hospital. So there's just so much stuff that goes on with sickle cell disease and so much more that we need to do. And and it's so hard to fight the systems that prevent us from doing all the things that need to be done and the systems that say they're developing these perfect sickle cell programs, when in reality, when we go to visit those sickle cell programs, they don't really exist. So we would be blessed to have a St. Jude's in every place that could really provide the kind of care that we want people with sickle cell disease. To have, because they're so deserving of that, they didn't vote to have sickle cell disease. That wasn't a request of theirs. They happened into sickle cell disease. And so we as a world, as communities, need to really participate in making things better for people with sickle cell disease. People, I tell people all the time, I'm the Black Panther of sickle cell. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the Black Panthers did good work. <laughs> really? And, and I uh, love that. Some, some of the Black Panthers will tell you I am the Black, Black Panther of sickle cell because I believe that we have to fight for what we want. And sometimes it's a difficult fight, but it's it a necessary fight. And, and I just want to, before I leave this earth, see people with sickle cell disease get what they deserve yeah. good, equitable, care that that really has been defined in a way that people have looked at things that work for people with sickle cell disease and they're delivering them because they don't deserve anything less than that. They struggle and suffer so much that it makes your heart hurt to see them struggle. And to hear doctors, when you ask them, so you don't believe they're in pain? And doctors tell you, no i don't believe they're in pain the biomarkers say that they couldn't be in that much pain and those biomarkers are their their hemoglobin is what it normally is and they don't i don't see a lot of yeah i don't see them breathing as hard as I mean, they should right. breathe and, and they were laughing on the phone so they were talking on the phone to someone and laughing and so i think we as hard as we work as mama bears It looks like we're gonna have to work harder because people with sickle cell disease are still experiencing craziness now.
1: Oh, for sure, absolutely,
5: and we're experiencing craziness.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say, Miss Yvonne, I know you're trying to make a point, and I'm gonna pull you in right here at this point because I want to ask you a question relating to what Miss Pat just mentioned, which was we spend a lot of time educating patients with sickle cell disease. I'm curious through your time in this space, how has the time or opportunity to educate healthcare providers, How has that opportunity been there for you at St. Jude? Have you spent time advocating and reaffirming some of the conceptual building blocks or fighting some of the barriers with physicians? Do you get Facetime to help educate them as well?
3: So, we're blessed at St. Jude and and everybody knows it. Um,
1: yeah. We, jokingly, the sickle cell doctors say you're the Disneyland of sickle cell disease well, for sickle cell, <laughs> cell
3: doctors. <laughs> you know, the saying, it, too much is given, much is we're responsible to give back. People give us money so we can give back to others. And so that's always been my ideology at St. Jude. It's always been we should create things not only for us, but things that we can give to other people that other people can use. And I'll just give a plug for our nursing organization, iasc we're developing a, a nursing curriculum for, because nurses are, that's the gap. We all know nurses spend the most time with patients with sickle cell disease, but there's no standardized curriculum for education For nurses, so we're developing that. But I think what Pat was saying, and I agree, hopefulness, but respect as well. And not only people outside of the community, I'll tell you one of my pet peeves that I hate more than anything is non compliant. What the heck is that? You don't agree with me that's what it says our duty is to give information to provide the best information and education we can give but respect the patient's decision if they do not agree with us but we write it down as non-compliant i think we have a a long way to go and we need to educate I, i think people even people who think who do great things i think there's still a bit of implicit bias there And and we can all realize that and we can all learn from that. And that's one of the things that I'm working really hard is for us to, even myself, we all have implicit bias, to recognize that and to try to bring that in when we're dealing with anybody, but especially people with sickle cell disease and their family members. Sometimes we forget about the siblings are impacted, the extended family is impacted. Many of our patients are single mothers raising children with sickle and as Pat said, have multiple children with sickle cell disease. So I think we have a long way to go and we have to recognize it's not just the disease itself. We have to get resources from outside of the community and we have to to partner and network with other organizations that can provide resources to our patients with sickle cell
1: disease yeah absolutely i think there's oh yeah go for it dr c
2: Uh, i'm listening to these stories and it's wonderful each one of you is just such a a, you know treasure to have in the community and how do we get more people like you in the community i'm sure there's some moms out there i'm sure there's some nurses out there who are thinking i want to be a mama bear how do i get started so what are the baby steps how do you get started
4: so, so all of us are dying to answer that question. Uh, I think you just tell your story. Oh, you you tell up, your story, show up, you show up and, up, and you... Speak up. Show up, stand up, and speak up. Because it's so important for people to hear your story. I, last year, when I was sitting around, I wrote this poem about sickle cell disease, and I don't have it with me or I would share it. But it basically focused on... on all the things that people with sickle cell disease it starts it started off with today I cry and I cry for all the mothers and fathers who have children with sickle cell disease. I cry for all the suffering and the pain that they go through. But we have to tell our stories right. in order to make people understand what sickle cell disease really is all about. The patient sometimes can't tell their story in a way that's impactful enough to pull other people in. And so we have to figure out how we can craft our stories. The nurses on the unit used to laugh because they would call me when they had a problem with a patient. And I would come and I, the first thing I would, do is walk in the room and close the door. Because I didn't need anybody else privileged to the communication we were about to have. And I would ask the patient, what the hell is your problem? But I was part of their family, so I could ask them things like that. And I think that a lot of people have judgment on people with sickle cell disease because they don't know them. They don't know. And they don't take the time to know them because of the pictures that have been painted about people with sickle cell disease. And first of all, we have to share what our reality is and what we've gotten from our walk in the sickle cell community so that we can make people feel like they want to endear themselves to people who are going through what people with sickle cell disease go through. I think, I don't think it's that difficult. I think if we could just, the nurses that I'm on the board with, International Association of Sickle Cell Nurses, are amazing. And I've been on the board for quite a while. And the only thing that keeps me on that board is my colleagues on that board, because on every opportunity that I have to interface with them it makes me better than I was before it makes me want to do more than what I do i actually retired from the sickle cell center not retired. but everybody says you're not retired but the reason i left the sickle cell center was not because i felt like i had done my job at the sickle cell center my my real job was to go out into the community and make a difference in the community and so Even though I don't get paid to do what I do now, it's rewarding and it's fulfilling. And that's the story that I need to tell other people. It's not about the money. It's about the rewards you get. Yvonne said earlier that the the Bible verse, to those who much is given, much is required. That is absolutely so true. And it's who makes you... It's what makes you who you are because you have been things have been heaped on you that have made you be able to live the life that you've lived. You have a responsibility also to ensure that other people can move in that path or that direction. And so that's I just think that we just a lot of times we just do the work and we don't share the benefits of doing that work. And I think people need to just understand that, you know, it's hard work, but it is work that's worth doing. It's fulfilling work. It may mm-hmm. I tell the patients all the time, I am who I am because of who you are. You made me a better person. And so I think that we always have to remember that we always have to give something back. We absolutely have to work hard at what we do and believe and believe that we can make things better for people with sickle cell disease. I, and I'm going to just tell one little short story about I had a young man who had leg ulcers and he it was hard for him to get to the clinic. He lived in the projects in LA and it was hard for him to come to the clinic. And so I would tell him all the time, I, I will send somebody out to get you, to bring you to the clinic. And he would be like, no, nah, Miss Pat, I'm going I'm going to come. And I, one day I said to him, "You know what? I'm going to send the police to get you. I'm going to send them out to the projects to get you, to bring you to the clinic so I can do your leg ulcers." Wouldn't that be horrible? Everybody going to see the police coming to your house. <laughs> he said, "Miss Pat, I live in the projects. The police don't come to the projects." <laughs> I was like, oh Oh, Oh my. (laughs) So you just, there's so much joy in working with people with sickle cell disease. They are so wise. They are so kind. They are so resilient. I can't imagine any group that's more resilient than people living with sickle cell disease.
1: That that conversation, it it makes me think of, uh, this is a little unrelated, but just because I'm having so much fun with you guys, I want to share this story with you. So one time I was talking to Hertz and Hertz said something to me. He said, tell me how you talk to sickle cell trait parents who are going to have a child. Like He asked me to talk him through the newborn visit or the pre sort of pre-newborn visit. And I started talking to him very scientifically about how I would go through it. And he said something to me that changed the way I was thinking completely. He said, Amar, when you say it like that, I'm the mistake you're trying to prevent.
4: (laughs) Exactly. Absolutely. And that,
1: and I was I was very like I was so green and like new to the sickle cell space at that time. But I'm so thankful for that moment because it completely flipped the field for me. It totally changed my mindset into how I was thinking about things. These are some of the best human beings I have met in my life that truly have made me better. Certainly have made um, my life more fulfilling. And I am just so grateful for every sickle cell patient I run into. It's truly a blessing. And I'm sure Dr. C feels exactly the same.
5: I was going to pop in here to what Dr. Z just said and about this whole thing about thinking that you've had this child with sickle cell and you made a mistake. So again, being a mother who came from a family that really was the first to really benefit from... Understanding the genetics and testing and everything. As a parent, you carry a lot of guilt. You have a perfectly healthy child and you're the parent. You're gonna, that's just it. My mom used to say, I'm doing the best I can. And as long as you're not going to be on the psychiatrist's couch re- repeating my problems, I've done the best that I can. I think we never think of our children as making a mistake, of being the mistake, but we think of not being able to prevent them from suffering so much. And I think I tell new parents that their journey is going to be so different from mine. So different because they have, right, they have All of these choices now. And I tell them about sickle cell in other countries. I tell them all the time, 95% of those kids in other countries have sickle cell and they don't live. 95% of the children in our our country live. So is there a reason for you to really not have that child? You know what I'm saying? It's not a child with Tay-Sachs, which they can't do nothing, which has this horrible, crippling disease that takes them away from at an early age. But being in this country, we are so fortunate, right? In that we have the system we have for those children. And if the child is born now, there's every reason to believe. Every reason. So Pat talks about hope. And I think belief started my journey. And then I went to hope. But now I know truth. And the Mm -hmm. truth I see in my own child's life and the truth I see in these clinical trials and as I go and I watch everything. So the truth is really when you're talking to these new parents, the conversation I believe should be about looking at what you have, right? That can change and will change and the responsibility for that change. And also what it means if you don't make that change. And I think that's the conversation that's really missing is I know sickle cell. I hear it all the time. I don't know about the new treatments. And I'm like, do you really know sickle cell? Because you are in LA, right? Or you're wherever you are. You're in the States. Let me show you what sickle cell looks like somewhere else. Because somewhere else, That's sickle cell. And whether or not you're looking at your child and your child looks healthy and happy right now, sickle cell is doing its thing. I'm just saying. And so I think we have to educate them. That what's happening as their babies, no matter how much we worry about them, how often they go to the hospital, they are in the best health they're going to be because they <clears> are young. And <throat> sickle cells in there doing its, it. I see it just doing its thing. Like, what is it? Fred the Builder. Sickle cell is just. And so <laughs> we can fix that now. But we're not having those conversations. And I go and I tell all of the pharma companies, I said, I was caught unaware. Seriously, everybody's heard me say this. My vision was we were going to get new treatments, and it was going to be like Mardi Gras. And they were going to be throwing scripts out, like Mardi Gras beads and parents and everybody. We were going to be catching them. Really. It never seemed. And you guys laugh at me, but it's honest to God truth. I was so busy fighting. And poor Ted Love, I would follow him around. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Oh, God. And Dr. Uh, Nahara... I'm like, okay, yeah. so what's happening? It's happening. And we won't even talk about what I did to the poor stem cell scientist. One of them told me the other day that I had followed him at so many conferences, stopped him, taking pictures that his wife started saying, who is that woman? So really, that's <laughs> the truth. But it, I was not prepared for this slow uptake. I was not prepared for that. And I really think it's because his children and being blessed in this country you think that journey you're having is the worst that it can be. We don't do a good enough job of really informing parents of what is happening that you don't see. So I think that's part of it too. And I think that we really have to really look into that because it's a paradigm shift into my mother was a revolutionary my brother he had an arm he the classic classic sickle cell stroke so he had the same thing that when i see people who have had a similar stroke like my brother they move like him they talk like him and people used to lock those kids away and my mom was like oh no so everywhere we went, he went, right? And so that was a paradigm shift of how we're looking at sickle cell and, and for her and us and my family. And then when we had all the the whole, whole life expectancy now changing between the Panthers and making all that happen, there was another shift. And now here we are again. But the duality of it, because we've never had this big of a divide of what is possible, not what we hope for, but what is actually possible, and then what it is we're getting right now. So I, would, I want us to really concentrate on what we can do, because every death now, every bit of suffering I really see so much of it as just being tragic. It wasn't tragic before. If I'm in the middle of of Kenya and I'm in a village and I have a child and my child dies, really it's hard, but it's not as hard, really, as it not having to be. Does that make sense? It's like when you're in pain and you take them and they're in pain and they're suffering and the docs are making a decision or the nurse is making a decision or the person sweeping the floor is making a decision and you're thinking, what the heck? How much does it cost for morphine and an IV? Seriously, how much does that cost? And or have you ever heard of torture? Because torture is infliction of pain and not withholding of it. And so every time I see these adults suffering in that way I think it's torture and so where else is torture in the healthcare system okay I'm I'm gonna stop I'm gonna stop sorry mom I'm sorry but I just so for me as with my mom hat and Pat said to me today you don't talk enough about your organization or what we do and I was really thinking about that earlier and it's Part of me thinks it's because how do you talk about trying to create a family st- structure? It sounds, or support, it sounds crazy. <laughs> that, But that's what I think about us having advocates who get past their own stuff yeah. and fight that battle at the point of care. It's not sexy. Nobody wants to give you money for it. Nobody, they look at you like an interloper, but... Saying, yeah. You know and what I'm trying I, to say. I, I don't I know it, on the about these about it,
3: ladies do yeah. they don't give themselves enough credit for. They do such a tremendous amount of work in the community all throughout, not only the state of California, but throughout the country. And I think that's what's needed. It's networking and telling other people like... Everybody that I, we've started a network with our community-based organization, Sickle Cell Foundation of Tennessee. And every organization that we reached out to accepted to join. And they are active members. And as a result of that, I found out things that I didn't know. And I thought I knew it all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's
5: right, That's right. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> but, but it's so invigorating to learn new things. And one of them said, told me, why doesn't everybody know about this why don't more people know about sickle cell disease and and I think that's one of the things that's imperative is just networking and bringing in one of the ladies is from the Alzheimer's Foundation they have tremendous support resources that aren't just for caregivers that aren't just applicable to their community, but applicable to every community where you have chronic illness and and caregivers. So there are other associations out there and that we
5: can capitalize on that I don't think we're taking advantage of.
4: Absolutely.
5: And we make a point of that. If we get a call and it's wherever it is, and we are doing that point of care advocacy, we reach out to whatever community-based organization is there and say, we have this person, they're in your area, they need help. And so I think this whole thing of dividing us into silos, thank God in a way for COVID and COVID, first of all, made us not have to talk about racism now because everybody is. So we don't have to prove that now. We just have a few words that we put out and like bias and everybody gets that part. That we can sounds just
4: better than racism. Yeah,
5: racism. <laughs> yeah, that too. But I use that word. But I'm saying we don't, we used to have to take people through it. We used to have to think about how we were going to bring it up, you yes. know, because you don't want to. Yeah, you don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but now we don't have to have that part of the conversation. There are keywords. They've had some training, many, so we can just tap into that. And then we can get to sickle cell. Yes. But no silos. And what we right. want is what we everybody else has. We deserve. And what we deserve.
4: <laughs> we Yeah, it's it really is very difficult. And I think what really makes it difficult for me in sickle cell is the value that's placed on people with sickle cell disease. You're a person who's on disability, you're getting SSI, you are getting medical insurance, you're getting food stamps, you're getting this. What are you giving back? And so there's so much judgment on the fact that People with sickle cell disease really don't add anything to the community in a lot of instances. When the medical profession Services looks at they look at them as folks who are receiving not folks who have, most folks with sickle cell disease don't have a PhD, or they're not an MD, or they're not a nurse. And so the question is, how do we make people understand that they're worthy of what everybody else is worthy of? Because it's a major problem in the community. So someone with sickle cell disease die. Oh, we expected them to die. When they were born, we expected them to only live so long. But the suffering, I think I would die If I had to suffer like people with sickle cell disease, I I would just say, just make it over. So we have, we we truly have a responsibility to get the things out there that need to be out there. I remember when I first started working in the area, there was a nurse on the unit who, every time she'd leave the unit, took the keys to the medication room with her. And the patients would call me on the phone uh, and they would say that I've been waiting for my medicine and they just keep telling me they can't give it to me yet. And then one, I asked the nurse because I just couldn't take it any longer, I said, do you intentionally take those keys off the unit when you leave because you're gone for an hour or something? And she actually said to me, somehow she contracted some unusual disease that was really painful. And she came to me and said, Pat, you know Mm -hmm. that question you asked me? I did intentionally take the keys because I couldn't believe anybody could be in that much pain until I got the condition that I got. And now that pain was real, she said. And so I, I would if I could, I would ask every person with sickle cell disease that I ever did that to, to forgive me. And that's the thought process. That pain, they nobody could have that much pain. No one, this that they're showing us is not real. They're addicted to medicines. Yvonne and I and Adrian have recently been working on a, a proposal that came out of the Fed that talked about addiction in sickle cell disease. And they didn't intend to, but I just happened to, they accidentally sent it to me. It was going out to doctors. But I had put myself on the doctor's list. And so it came to me. And so I sent them a letter saying, I don't know how you could use the term addict because there's nothing that, that proves that's a problem in sickle cell disease. All the things that have been written say that it's not a problem. And yet you're looking for a way of discovering some other medicines that would lessen addiction in the sickle cell population. That doesn't make sense. And I did get a communication back, Yvonne. We're working on it, (laughs) and and, and I'm working on that. Sometimes you just have to be the watchdog in the sickle cell community because things come across that you'll never see unless you're looking, and they come from people that you never would have expected them to come from. Because I never would have expected to get that from the government, and not from that group, and not from that group in particular. So life in the sickle cell community is difficult. Mama Bears, look, I am just
1: overwhelmed by the amount of wisdom that you have given us, that you've imparted upon us today. I want to reaffirm that your sweat, blood, and tears that you've put into this space are immensely and unmeasurably important to the community. I think that there's going to be a time from now, it's a famous proverb that's coming to me now. And they say someone's sitting in shade today because someone planted a tree a long time ago. And I feel like you are those people right now. You're planting those trees. And many generations from now will enjoy shade and comfort because of the work you're doing today. And for that, we honor you and we
3: thank you. Thank you for having us.
6: Hey, Sickle Cell Warriors, this is Amy Board, co-host of the Bloodstream Podcast, and I am here with Tiana Wolford. She is a Sickle Cell Warrior and the Chief Executive Officer at the Sickle Cell Reproductive Health Organization. Tiana, welcome again to Cheat Codes. Tell me a little bit about the mama bears. I want to hear your personal story. I want to hear why they are so important to you and this community. Oh,
7: wow. Okay. I'm so honored to get to talk about them and just give them their flowers while they can hear it. I have known each of them for so long. I think I knew Mama Pet before anyone and certainly Mrs. Carol because we grew up, I grew up going to the SCDAA conferences. And that's where I first met them and began like sitting under them, listening to their talks. And it's just very clear that they had such dedication and passion for this community. And then as I got older, I've developed really close personal relationships with all of them and They just mean everything to me. They are what we call my found family, and they're so nurturing, and they always get me together when I need them, and literally, I can call any of them at any time, and they'll stop what they're doing to just make sure that I'm okay, and I know that I'm not the only one with that relationship. There are so many warriors who are being nurtured and that they've poured into over the years, so... As a community, we're just really grateful and blessed to have them.
6: Jana, tell me how you were introduced to the Mama Bears. How did you learn who they were? Tell me that story. I
7: don't even remember specifically how I was introduced to all of them. I know it just happened. At SDDAA. we've always been like a close-knit community. And so being in that conference year after year and seeing each other at different advocacy events, and then I met Mama Adrian through Mama Pat, And then it was actually, it was Jewel Darvinet, I believed, who really started coining this term of calling them the mama bears about five years ago and it just stuck.
6: So this is a part of our Legends of Sickle Cell series. And so tell me, put some words to why each of these women are legends of the sickle cell community. I think because they really go
7: above and beyond. Like I said, we there are so many of us who depend on them and look to them for wisdom and advice and the way that they just invest in you, like they will start to freak out. I was recently in Vegas and I got sick, which is not a good place for anybody to get sick, but particularly for somebody with sickle cells. I called on them and they were figuring out all types of plan A's, B's, C's, and making sure that I had the resources to get better. And like I said, it's not
6: just for me. They will do that for any warrior. That is so great. What, I guess to close, what would be your words to them? What would you like them to hear from you? It's good because of the relationships that I have with them.
7: I get to tell them how I feel about them quite a bit. But I'll just take this opportunity, not just for me, but for all of the warriors that they've touched. Just thank you. I think that I am... The product of mentorship, particularly from these three, and just their time and their energy that they pour into me (laughs) really means a lot and it goes a long way.
1: I think, Dr. C, we have talked to a lot of people over these 50-ish episodes of Cheat Codes. And this episode is probably the episode in which you and I
2: least spoke. That was on purpose. I I didn't want to miss a thing they had to say.
1: I was at the edge of my seat the whole time. What a phenomenal group of advocates. We are so immensely lucky to have these types of people in our sickle cell community. We are so lucky to share this space with people who think and feel like that. No doubt. I don't really have much more to add because, man, those mama bears said it all. So, with that being said, if you know somebody who is in need to hear this podcast, please share it with them. Like and subscribe. Let us know how we're doing. You can always follow me at Dr. Z Sickle Cell, me at Imagineer. We'll catch you next time, Warriors. Peace.